Okay, this is Gary Parrish again from CBSSports.com. Again, it's uh, Thursday, December 4th, and this is the Ion College Basketball Podcast brought to you by Squarespace, which recently launched a version of its platform called Squarespace 7, which has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, 15 new templates, and a feature called Cover Pages. You want to try it? Go to Squarespace.com and enter the offer code FUN at checkout to get 10% off that Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. So I am in Madison, Wisconsin today, still here after uh, being at Wednesday night's game at the Kohl Center between Duke and Wisconsin. Impressive victory for the Blue Devils. I got a flight scheduled for later today that's going to take me to Lexington where I'll be at Kentucky, Texas on Friday night. And then, of course, there's Gonzaga, Arizona on Saturday. So this is a big week in college basketball. I'm here to chat about it and other things is NBC Sports' Rob Doster. Rob, how are you on this Thursday? I am doing great, man. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Nah, you're uh, you're 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 very kind to be here. So let's uh let's look back first, and then we'll look ahead a little bit. Let's start with Duke's 80-70 win over Wisconsin. Impressive, um, I thought on three levels. One, just simply because opponents rarely win in that building, regardless of the circumstances. Two, because young opponents just do not win in that building ever. And three, I think because Wisconsin never gets its ass beat in that building, and yet Wisconsin took an ass beating from Duke, a Duke team. Um, that's heavily relying on three freshmen. So I still think, I think I think, that Kentucky, what they did to Kansas and Indianapolis is the single most impressive performance of the season. But what Duke did at Wisconsin has to be in that conversation, right? Yeah, I think it does. Because the one thing you got to say about Kansas is they played terribly. I'd say 50% of that loss is on Kansas just not really being all that good right now. And Wisconsin, I don't think they played poorly last night. I think they played well. If you go, if you watch a lot of those shots that Duke hit, guys like Suleiman and Matt Jones, and, and some of the plays that they made, you know, it wasn't like Wisconsin was playing bad defense. Duke hit a lot of really, really tough shots, and they went out and they actually, I mean, I mean you said it right, they uh, they kicked Wisconsin's ass, and you don't see that, especially from a team that actually pre- played pretty well. The one thing I will say about Wisconsin is that I don't think Sam Decker is right. right. I don't know how bad this ankle injury is. And I'm not ready to say that they aren't, you know, one of the top two or top three teams in the country um, just yet. I don't think that that loss proves anything. But until Sam Decker is playing like the Sam Decker we expected to see this season, um, I, I don't think that we know exactly how good Wisconsin can be. It's, you know, if you're, uh, you know, listen, I think Wisconsin is going to be fine, if only because they're always fine. And they have two, you know, NBA guys at the very least and Bo Ryan and whatever. But, um you know, I was thinking last night as I watched this that, you know, if you're Wisconsin and you return, you know, the four four of the most important pieces from a Final Four team, uh, two pros in Decker and, and Kaminsky, and who knows where Nigel Hayes ends up, that if you were ever going to be able to take advantage of, of a young team, it should be in early December. Like, you can look at that Duke roster and think Tyus Jones is only going to get more comfortable and better, and Jalil's only going to get more comfortable and better, and yet... You know, I guess Wisconsin will get better too, but teams like Kentucky and and Duke and even Gonzaga, I think, because of Sabonis, have so much room to grow that they probably have. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe a higher ceiling than what what Wisconsin actually has. Yeah, and I'll agree with that because the the jump that freshmen make during the season is normally, you know, that's the thing that you expect. You expect those teams to grow and you expect those teams to get better. And we kind of. We know what Wisconsin is at this point. You know, we know what they are. I think the fascinating thing to me last night was just how good Tyus Jones was. I mean, all we heard about all summer and all we heard about all through, 
you know, the fall and practices with Jaleel Okafor this and Jaleel Okafor that. And, you know, after watching Duke play for, what, six, seven, eight games, however many they've played, all you've heard about is, oh, man, Justice Winslow is this good. He's going to be a lottery pick. He's a top ten pick. He's, you know, the next Andre Iguodala or James Harden or whatever. And the guy that nobody has been talking about is, is, is Tyus Jones. And, you know, there's a reason that he spent much of his high school career as, you know, a, a top two, three, four player in the class, whatever he was. And it just you go into the Cole Center in your first true road game as a freshman and put up, what was it, 22 points, yeah. six boards, and four assists? Like, that's unheard of. Well, like, you know, I think sometimes we look at these prospects and, you know, it's very easy to appreciate Derrick Rose because he's a, he's a you know, athletic freak. And it's very easy to appreciate, I don't know, people like that. But for Tyus Jones, he's not the biggest, strongest point guard in the country. He's not the fastest or the quickest. He doesn't have the best jumper. But he just, there's something to be said and for just knowing how to run a basketball team. I mean, we did, we saw it last year with Tyler Ennis and, and you know, in years past, we've seen it with, I don't know, Mike Conley comes to mind, although he's an elite-level athlete himself. Uh, there's something to be said for, for first-year players who just know how to run a basketball team. And Tyus, I mean, my God, already he, he seems like he's in complete control of what he's doing, which brings me to another point that, I don't know, I, I actually first noticed probably in the, in the Duke-Michigan State game in Indianapolis, but it, uh, it was sort of reminded of it last night. They, they are young. They start three freshmen. Like any other team in the country starts three freshmen, the coach is sitting up there saying, hey, you got to you know, cut us some slack. We're starting three freshmen. And yet when you watch them, they don't look young. They don't play young. They, they look like a veteran team that's been playing together forever. And I think some of that might have to do with the fact that, you know, Tyus and Jaleel and, and Justice have been playing together for a while. I mean, they were on two different USA basketball teams that competed um, overseas. But the last team I can remember that started three freshmen but didn't, but never, even November, December, looked like a young team was that national championship Kentucky team that started Teague, Gilchrist, and Davis and had enough competent veterans sprinkled around them who weren't only competent but also willing to let the young stars be stars. I'm not comparing this team to that one exactly. I'm not predicting a national championship necessarily. Um, but do, do you see the similarities between that freshman class molding with those veterans two years ago at Kentucky or, or three years ago at Kentucky and, and this freshman class at Duke molding with these veterans right now? Uh, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. Um, and, and the comparison even goes further than that. Uh, both teams had an elite level big man that could end up being a number one pick in the draft. They both had a really, really talented wing. And I mean, one of the comparisons that you hear for Justice Winslow is that he could be you know, Michael Kidd Gilchrist with a jumper. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Tyus Jones and Marcus Teague. I think Tyus is, is much better than Marcus was. Yep. And, and you know, I, that also brings me to another point. I think the key right now, what has made Duke this good, is that Quinn Cook has fully bought into this idea that, you know, he is an off guard this year. He is a guy that's out there to score. He's a guy that's out there to, to spread the floor, knock down three-pointers. And, you know, he just so happens to be an all-ACC caliber playmaker. And, that is what makes Duke so dangerous, that they have this guy who started for two years at the point guard spot, have no problem watching this freshman that got that, that they recruited over him mm -hmm. come in, take his job, be better at it than him, and have him slide to a different spot. And, and, you know, it's so hard for a guy to get out of that mindset of being a point guard. Like, that, that's an identity for a player. That, that, that's what Quinn Cook has been his entire career. I talked to him after... Well, what was the tournament where Duke was? They were in New York for something. I forget yeah, what. Yeah, they but, played um, Stanford. 
Yeah, yeah, at the Barclays Center. Right. That's what it was. So I talked to Quinn afterwards, and I was like, you know, have you ever done this before? Have you ever not been a point guard? And he said, this is the first time in my basketball career that I have been playing off the ball. And and how hard that is for, for a kid, even a senior, like, that doesn't matter. How hard that is for a basketball player to do is is something that is, I think it's being underappreciated right now. And, you know, his ability to just kind of buy into what, Duke needs him to do has been really, really, really important. It's humbling on some level because mm-hmm. you know really we, we can look at Quinn Cook and say, oh, he's you know he's been okay. But the truth is, if you're okay at Duke, it means you've been great your whole life. Otherwise, you never even end up at Duke. And so, um, to then going into your senior year, basically being being told by your coaches, hey, we're bringing in this 17, 18 year old who is better than you, and he's going to run our team. Now, you might have been running our team on some level for the past couple of years, but not anymore. We're going to need you to slide up the ball. And, by the way, we're going to need you to be a great leader and a mentor. Like, uh, you can't take for granted that everybody's going to accept that, even if it's smart to do so. And, you know, I went to Durham in the preseason. I think it was October, early October. Um to, to actually work on a, on a Jelly Okafor story, and I spent some time with him. But one of the things he brought up, um, without me even asking, was how great Quinn had been, not only with, with him and Justice and Grayson, but, but specifically with Tyus, and that they were always together. And, you know, it, it's very easy for a guy to be resentful. I, I think I probably would be, you know. Like, I, I think I'm the starting point guard at Duke, and then this kid's coming in, and, you know, he's just a freshman, and they're already giving him the job. And keep in mind, also, with social media today, every time Quinn Cook had a bad game last year, you know what Duke fans were hitting him with? Oh, thank God Tyus Jones is coming next year, so we don't have to watch you next year, you know. And so, like, I can completely understand how the resentment was set in, and yet, to your point, and, and Jalil said this, Tyus said this, I talked to Kay about it, Jeff Capel about it, on and off the record. They all said he's been great. And to, that's, that's really, really impressive for a guy who has been, on some level, humbled to turn it into a positive. And listen, I don't know what kind of pro Quinn Cook's going to be, but if I were an NBA scout or general manager, um, I would I would pay attention to the idea that this guy has been able to adapt pretty quickly in a way that a lot of guys wouldn't. And, and I think, though, playing point guard at his size is the key to getting to the NBA. Maybe showing that you can be a great teammate and knock down shots is, is another path as well. Yeah, and, and the one thing that, that NBA scouts always talk about when, when they're looking at these college guys is, you know, it's different than at the high school level. At the high school level, you're looking, you know, how, how long is the guy? How high can he jump? Uh, how, wingspan? All, all those, like, Jay Billis superlatives is what you're looking at and, and trying to see, like, where can this guy be? When you're looking at college kids, unless it's, you know, an Anthony Davis or an Andrew Wiggins or a LeBron or, or someone at that level, you're trying to figure out if a guy can fit into a role and whether he can buy into playing that role. Sure. And I think what this kind of proves is that Quinn Cook doesn't have a problem making a sacrifice if it's better for the team. And, I, and, and you know, he's going to be a point guard. If he makes the NBA, he's, it's going to be as a point guard. He's not going to be playing off the ball. But I think that this kind of shows scouts that he doesn't have a problem making a sacrifice if it helps his team win. And I don't know if it was something that you wrote or I, I forget when he said it, but he made the point that he's never really won anything when he was at that Duke. Was, yeah, I talked to him about that. That's when I was there. I went there specifically to do something on Jaleel and ended up, because of what Jalil told me and Tyus told me and Kay told me and Capel told me, I was like, well, I need to go talk to, um, I, you know, this will make a, I came here to write about Jalil and I did. 
but I, you know, this Quinn Cook column could be all right too. And so I went and talked to Quinn, and one of the things he pointed out to me that I thought was really impressive, he said, he said, you know, you go, you know, we were in the back of Cameron Indoor, and he said, walk out to that court and look at the banners. See if you see any from the years that I've been here. He said, I've never won anything. I, you know, I, I don't want to be one of the Duke players who never won anything. You know, when all the Duke guys come back, um, they all talk about, hey, remember when we were in the Final Four? Hey, remember when we won the ACC tournament? Remember when we did this and that? He said, I haven't really done anything, and I don't want to be that guy for the rest of my life. And so if it's better for – listen, I would love to play point guard. I, that's, my, that's the position I think I, I – I, uh, that's the position I've always played. It's the pl- position I want to play going forward. But if it's better for our team, for Tyus to, to run the team and me play beside him, then I'm happy to do that because I, I want to be a part of something that I can say I was a part of 10 years from now, 20 years ago. And sometimes it's just like, you know, players saying the right stuff. But it seemed genuine. And with the way he's carried himself through the early part of the season, um, it appears that it actually was very genuine. And, and, yeah, one more thing to add to that. I don't think Quinn Cook ever would have been – in consideration to be an All-American point guard ever, even this season, if Tyus Jones wasn't there. I think that there's an argument to be made that he's been, you know, he, he at the very least deserves to be in the conversation to be an All-American in the role that he's playing right now. So I did a podcast earlier this week uh, with my colleagues here at CBSSports.com. We were talking about Kansas, and we seem to disagree on Kansas. I I think the Jayhawks are a Final Four contender and, and Big 12 favorite despite the blowout loss to Kentucky, but not everybody agrees. Where, where do you fall on Kansas right now? I don't think that you can say they aren't a Big 12 favorite right. until Bill Self doesn't win a Big 12 regular season title. Like he has this way of getting everybody to come together. And, you know, they've looked bad early in the season in the past. And, you know, they've had their moments where they haven't looked like, you know, a real Kansas team should. But I think this team is going to end up getting it together. One, you know, people that, that don't think that they can win haven't seen Kelly Oubre play like Kelly Oubre yet. And he is really, really good. Two... Cliff Alexander is just kind of scratching the surface of, of what he can be um, for this team this season. And, and three, Wayne Selden has not played anything like the, the guy that we expect to be a lottery pick. And I don't know if any of those three things are ever going to happen. Yeah, how about that? Let's, let's, let's go to Selden. Like, is it possible he just is what he is? I, I, I think so. Yeah. And I, I, There's two things that I've noticed about him. One, he doesn't play with any confidence. You know, you to be a successful athlete, regardless of the sport, you have to play with confidence. You have to believe in yourself. Otherwise, you're just you're going through the motions, and, and you know it just it doesn't work that way. And I don't think he has any confidence in himself right now. And the other thing is that when you watch him play, see see if he ever goes left. Right. I don't think he ever goes left. And when you become a one-dimensional player that can't really shoot and you can only go with your right hand, it doesn't matter how good your physique is or how athletic you are. Or, you know what your potential is as an NBA player. If you can only go one direction and do one thing on a basketball court, you're not going to be very good. Well, to your point about being um, confident, and, you know, if you're, like, I don't know, listen, confidence is important in every walk of life. Basketball, you know, uh, radio hosting, sports writing, I, you know, I think confidence is Online important. dating. <laughs> Certainly online dating. I think confidence is important in every aspect of life. But, um, you know, if you're a big, like, if you're just a physically imposing big, you cannot be confident, but just still be grab rebounds when they come off the rim and dunk balls when they come off the rim. And when you're, you know, when you're a shooter and you know, the ball goes in, gets kicked back out, you're, you're already in a shooting. You don't have to be confident necessarily to knock down those shots. But 
because those things just sort of happen in the flow of a game. You grab rebounds if you're around the rim. You make shots if you're open, or you at least take them. If you lack confidence as a wing, particularly not a wing that shoots, but a wing who is supposed to be a, a slasher and get to the rim guy, if you lack confidence at that in that role, you never even you never even attack. And if you don't attack from the wing and you're not a shooter, then you're almost an irrelevant offensive basketball player. Yeah, and I, I think that's what we're kind of seeing out of William Selden right now. What? Was it against Michigan State that he was 0 for 10 mm-hmm. in the field? Yeah, I was there. I mean, just like, I, you know, um, yeah, I mean, like 0 for 10 in college basketball when some people thought you were a one-and-done guy? No, it was just one game, but it was it was representative of, of a larger problem. It was an extreme represent, representation of a larger problem, but uh, I'm starting to wonder if he's ever going to be the top, you know, 10 pick or lottery pick that, that some people, uh, including myself, projected because – you know, through a year and you know six games, he hasn't he hasn't looked that way. Yeah, well, I I, I can kind of write off last season because he had the knee issue and he had he had a procedure done over the summer. Um, so I I can you can excuse that, but what he's done so far this season when he's supposed to be finally healthy is not something that can be overlooked. But you know, back to your point about Kansas, with the amount of talent that's on that roster and with the guy that's coaching that team. I don't think that you can ever write this group off. And, and you know, I, I still – I don't know if I want to say that they are the favorite, but to say that they aren't a favorite in the Big 12 is I, – I just think it's crazy at this point. If they do have um, a challenger in the Big 12, and I guess there could be any number of challengers in the Big 12. Uh, Iowa State could be one. Oklahoma could be one. Um, but Texas seems to be the, the most obvious. And like I said at the top, I am headed to Lexington later on today – will be in Rupp Arena tomorrow night uh, for Kentucky and Texas. Can, can the Longhorns, even without Isaiah Taylor, uh, forget when, because I, I think it would be silly to predict anybody to beat Kentucky and Rupp right now, but uh, can, they, can they make a run at them? Can Texas make it competitive? You know, I, I think that they're going to hang around just because they have enough big bodies inside that, that Kentucky is not going to overwhelm them. And that's kind of what Kentucky does. Is they, they, they overwhelm you with, you know, these waves and waves and waves of six foot ten athletes that are doing windmills and all this kind of stuff. And Texas has enough big bodies to match up with them. They go just as deep as Kentucky does along their front line. The problem is that Isaiah Taylor was the guy that was the difference maker for him. He was the quick point guard that wasn't going to get you know phased by having to deal with you know, the the size of Andrew Harrison. He was a guy that could have negated. You know, some of that ability in the, the backcourt, some of the question marks that they have. And him not being there is just, you know, I, I think that's going to be too much for him to overcome. But winning in Rupp right now is a very, very difficult thing to do. And I don't think you could do that without who is arguably Texas's most important player. One thing that doesn't seem like it's a difficult thing to do, at least didn't look like it last night, uh, winning at um, the Dean Smith Center. North Carolina takes a loss to Iowa. Um, this after they were in Atlantis, gave up 37 Offensive rebounds to Butler, lose there, and then they get back to Chapel Hill, lose a home game to uh, an Iowa team that is okay, like okay, but they're not the type of team that ought to be going into Chapel Hill and winning. Uh, What's up with North Carolina? I think that they're going to end up having a lot of games that look an awful lot like this until they find someone that can be, you know, that secondary scoring option on the perimeter. They need Justin Jackson to be that guy that can shoot, you know, 37% 37% from three and can average, you know, 13 or 14 points a game. It takes some pressure off of Marcus Page because right now, you know, Page is the only guy that can score anywhere other than eight feet from the rim. Right. And 
with the way that this roster is built, I, I don't think they're not going to be able to play North Carolina basketball, first of all. You're not going to be seeing these teams getting up and down the floor and running the secondary break and doing all that stuff that makes Roy Williams Roy Williams. That's just not who is on this roster. They don't have those pieces. So I think you're going to see a lot of situations where they really have to muck it up like they did last night, like they did against Butler. And I don't know if they have the bodies for it. You know, Kennedy Meeks has been really, really good. And Bryce Johnson, I think, is a really talented big man. But I don't know if those are guys that are built for playing physical like that. Because here's the thing you've got to remember. Iowa was kind of known last year for being soft. They were known for not playing any defense at all. That was that was the red flag with them is that when it came to crunch time, you know, they just they kind of wilted and they kind of folded. And last night, you know, it was Mike Gazelle that, that drove and got the and one game winning bucket in the final minute. I think Iowa held North Carolina to it was like 28 percent shooting. I think they were four of 23 from three. And if North Carolina is going to struggle at home against a team that was a sub 100 defense on Ken Palm last season, right. then what's going to happen when they play a team that can actually defend? No, I'm always struck also by, you know, you, you make a point that is undeniably true, at least at this point, which is um, the only person who can score, you know, away from the, the paint is Marcus Page on the entire roster at the high major level. And yet I'm a little sympathetic to, to big time programs when, you know, they lose three dudes early to the NBA draft who maybe play a certain position. And so you just, and, and you just, or, and then, or, you know, somebody gets suspended like last year with PJ Harrison, or somebody tears an ACL, or somebody um, decides to transfer. You can sort of get caught in a situation where you go, oh, wow, like this isn't the roster we expected to have. I mean, but, look at Syracuse. That's the perfect example. Syracuse is the perfect example. They always thought Tyler Ennis was going to be on this basketball team, right? And and or or Miami after you know the year after Shane Larkin, they you know they did, they couldn't have reasonably expected they were going to lose Shane Larkin when they lost Shane Larkin. So you look up and they're like, oh wow, well we don't have a, a competent point guard. Well, we had one, we and we lost him early. But it, like whereas you can expect to lose. Derrick Rose early or, um, you know, any uh, Tyreek Evans early or any of the John Calipari point guards or people, you know, Julius Randle early. You prepare for that. Um, you don't prepare for you losing Tyler Ennis after one year. You don't prepare uh, for losing, uh, um, you know, Shane Larkin after one year. But my, my point is this. When you look at North Carolina's roster, this was always supposed to be the roster for this season. So how does a program like that get caught with – with no perimeter scores outside of their point guard that they're now asking to, to be a perimeter scorer. I, I don't know. And I, I mean, that's something you got to ask Roy Williams. Yeah. The one thing I will say is this, I think that Justin Jackson can be that guy. And I would assume that Roy Williams, when he recruited him, thought that Justin Jackson would be that guy as well. And, you know, it, it's a freshman. He's played seven games. I think he's still kind of figuring things out. He is averaging. I want to say, 11 points a game, right. but, you know, it's kind of, it's all, if you watch him play, it's all stuff going to the rim, floaters, mid-range stuff. He's really, really good at that. He just has to kind of expand his game a little bit. And the other part of it is I think that Roy was expecting either Nate Britt or Joel Berry to right. be a little bit better than they are, which would allow Paige to move off the ball. But, I mean, at this point, Britt, he switched hands shooting. He switched, he was so bad <laughs> shooting as a freshman that as a lefty, now he's shooting right-handed. So that should kind of tell you what he is as an offensive option. And Joel Berry, I mean, I don't I don't know if he's ready. I haven't really been impressed with him. I don't think he's even playing all that much. So I, I, I can understand how that does happen when guys don't really pan out the way you expect them to. But 
I mean, still, you got to know that Marcus Page is your only score, and you got to do something about it. Uh, remember, today's Eye on College Basketball podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, where you can easily create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace is now redesigned with the Squarespace 7 interface, including integration with Google Apps, partnership with Getty Images, 15 new templates and cover pages, and Squarespace has an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Everything starts just $8 a month. It includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year, and every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look great on every device every single time. So to start a free trial, no credit card required. Uh, get to building your website today by just going to Squarespace and using the offer code FUN to get 10% off and to show your support for the Ion College Basketball Podcast. at squarespace.com. Squarespace, start here, go anywhere. Okay, let's touch on some news and notes presented by Squarespace. Wichita State's 35-game regular season winning streak was snapped in OT at Utah late Wednesday, early Thursday morning. Here's my question for you. Are the Shockers a legitimate top 10 team or a legitimate top 25 team or neither? I think they're absolutely a legitimate top 25 team. I don't know if they are top 10 at this point. I think that losing uh, Clee Anthony early and just, you know, he was a six foot eight combo forward that can match up with most power forwards um, at the high major level, but could also step out and hit threes and beat people off the dribble and do everything that we saw him do in that game against Kentucky. I think losing that presence is going to hurt him a lot. But, you know, the loss last night, they did a lot of really un-Wichita State things. Like Fred Van Vliet was 5 for 19 from the floor, took a lot of bad shots early in the game. Uh, he missed a fr- the front end of a one-and-one one with, yeah. like, I think eight seconds left yeah. that would have put Wichita State ahead in overtime. Um, they missed a box out on a free throw when Utah, I think it, they missed the front end of a one-and-one, and Wichita State missed the box out with, like, I think there were, like, four seconds left, which, which would have given them a better chance to uh, – get a good shot at the end of the game and those are things that Wichita State rarely if ever does and you know I think you've got to give credit to Utah for that you know they're better than number 25 they're probably the second best team in the Pac-12 and Wichita State went into their building and took them to overtime and lost by a point where they could have won at the end of the game and you know the thing with Wichita State is last year they won all those games they won all those close games all the breaks went that way and last night, you know, it just so happened that the breaks didn't go their way. So I don't think that you can write a team off for – I mean, you say this all the time, GP. When you lose on the road to a team that's ranked by one possession, that, that doesn't mean that your season is over and that doesn't mean that you're bad. It just means that you lost on the road, which is what's supposed to happen in college basketball. Right. And, you know, for people who will use it – and I don't really think people will, will so I might be like, uh, you know, uh, punching a straw man here – but uh, for people who would might use it to, to suggest that, uh, see, Wichita State isn't really for real. Wichita State, even after last night's loss, still 5-1 and one in their past six games against AP top 25 teams. And again, um, you know, their last two losses was a one-possession loss to a Kentucky team that was immensely talented and played for the national title and to a Utah team that's got, I don't know, maybe two NBA players and in, in a, a pretty um, incredible environment in uh, Salt Lake City last night. So... Um, it's not undefeated, but it's uh, certainly nothing to be ashamed of. Memphis is 2-3 uh, and three with three double-digit losses, including a home loss earlier this week to Stephen F. Austin. As you know, I live there, and fans are going bananas, trying to figure out if they can uh, buy Josh Pastner out of his contract, even though he has made four straight NCAA tournaments. What's an outsider's uh, perspective on the current state of the Tigers, the future of Josh Pastner, and all of that stuff? 
I don't think that he should be fired after this season. I, I think that, you know, he's done enough to build up goodwill in that city uh, and, and with that team at this point. I think a lot of this stems from the frustration that Memphis fans don't think that they've lived up to the expectations and the talent that they've had on the roster in the past. Would that would that be correct? Oh, sure. Like, um, well, this is a this is a fact. I mean, it's often because of where I live, you get in debates to, to debates about you know everything related to the Memphis program, and then by extension, Josh. You know, can he coach? Is he just a recruiter? Is he just a nice guy living off nice guy stuff? What's the point of four NCAA tournaments if you get run off the court every time? You never make it to the second weekend. All of these things are debatable, right? This is not debatable. This, this, what I'm about to say is a fact. Um, the, um, in, in all five, the past four years, before this one, so Josh's second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year, if you go look where they started in preseason polls and look where they were in postseason rankings, they were never um, ranked um, higher in the po- you know, after the postseason than they were in the preseason. And so that, by definition, at least loosely, suggests that you know, each and every year, though you might be good, and they have been good, you haven't been as good as people thought you were going to be. And then this year, I mean, they, when you've got a front line of Nick King, Sheck Goodwin, and Austin Nichols, it almost seems like regardless of what other parts you have, you can't be losing home games to Stephen F. Austin or getting blown out by a Baylor team with comparable, if not inferior, talent and a Wichita State team with uh, that's undeniably better, but go look at recruiting rankings and uh, you know from from the roster, and and it wouldn't suggest that they ought to be better. And so, yeah, I think a lot of the frustration is rooted in, yo man, you you get all these players and they're all ranked in the top twenty or thirty or fifty or seventy, and when you throw them on the court together for whatever reason, especially this year, uh, they don't look like even a top one hundred basketball team. Yeah, well, they don't have any guard play. None. GP, they might as well put you out there and let you run the point. Josh actually asked me if I could run the point for him. <laughs> no, no, it is bad. Oh, man, it's, no. it's bad. And, and like, um, you know, I... I, I do you know, hold on. Do you know how much I would pay to see you go out there and try to run the point for a 40-minute college basketball <laughs> dude, game? Dude, a lot of money. I just restarted <laughs> playing indoor soccer. You know, just because I, when I was younger, I played, and I was, I was pretty good. And so uh, I, I play in a men's league now, indoor, and um, forget playing a 40-minute basketball game. I can do about three minutes at a time of indoor soccer before I feel like I'm going to die. You ought to see our, our men's team. We, we play, it's an adult league, but we're all like in our 30s, like mid-30s to late 30s to 40s, my entire team. And, and every other team is like 20-year-olds. So we're out there running around with these 20-year-olds. And like by halftime, none of us even want to play anymore. Like, at the beginning of the game, everybody's like, oh, yeah, I'll start, I'll start, I'll start. Everybody wants to start. Start of the second half, nobody wants to go back out. <laughs> it's like we're, <laughs> like we're dying. So I could not run the point for, uh, for any basketball team, I, I'm certain. Not to mention I'm not very good at dribbling. But um, so in the offseason, I said, listen, if you're relying on first-year guards, Markel Crawford, Pookie Powell, like those are type of guys that should be important program players when they're juniors, not when they're freshmen. Like, that, that's not the same as recruiting um, – you know, the Harrisons or Derrick Rose or uh, Tyus Jones or, or whatever. Like, and so Josh actually recognized this as well. Like, I, I can't rely on, on those first-year guards or else we're going to be in trouble. So that's, that was the route in going out and getting Kedron Johnson because they needed help in the backcourt. But Kedron Johnson, to date, hasn't been any help in the backcourt. And so if he sucks and the other guards just aren't ready, then you've got, you got bad backcourt problems. Kedron looks like he didn't play basketball 
once the entire time. Oh, do you want me to tell you that like that. that is probably true? Like one of the reasons Vanderbilt didn't want him back is because however you do such things, you know, there were there were opportunities for him to to stay in shape and to work out and to train and to just work on your skill that that theoretically, you know, might be your livelihood. And I was told that he basically didn't get in a gym for a year. Like he like so when you say he looks like he hasn't been in a gym for a year, it's probably true. It's yeah, he like he didn't play. It would be like if you um, had, you know, just took a year off from your job and never opened a computer for a year, and then and then and then we said, okay, um, hey, come back tomorrow, and I need you to start working just like you were before. Like it would be difficult. Like you might even forget where the damn keys are on your keyboard, and yet um, I don't know why Kedron thought he'd be able to do it. But I mean, he looks. Not only does he look like to your eyeballs, like out of shape and not a Division One player. Um, he can't play. And if he can't play and the other ones aren't ready, I don't know how Memphis gets much better than what they are right now. What they are right now isn't very good. Yeah, when you have a really, really good front line, you need to have guards that can get them the ball. Right. And if you don't have guards that can dribble the ball over half court or get you into an offensive set or do anything like that, then having a big front line is just kind of – they're just there. They're well, just big. Well, to that point, let me, yeah, let me ask you this. Because um, I was just bouncing this around with some friends the other day. Like, if, if we're just going to acknowledge or concede that the guards aren't going to be very good, name, name me college basketball teams that are good if they have bad guards. I mean, is it ever need, the case? No, you, you need good guards. You can't, you you can't be good. good you can't teams. be good. With, you, can be good you can be good with bad bigs. I don't think you can be good with bad guards. Yeah, you need a point guard to get you into your offense, to, to run an offensive set. Why do you think? London Perantes was so valuable to Virginia last year. Right. You no, know, he doesn't really do anything all that impressive. He's not an NBA prospect, but he goes out there. He doesn't turn the ball over. He gets him into their sets. He defends and he hits open threes. And all of a sudden, you're looking at a guy that you know maybe one day down the road he could be an All ACC player because all he does is not turn the ball over, hit open shots, and make sure that they run what Tony Bennett wants them to run. Um. Big game on the West Coast coming up this weekend. Uh, mentioned it at the top. Gonzaga at Arizona. Who wins that one? I think Arizona wins it. Um, I, I think that they're just going to be too big and too physical. Uh, that said, I don't know if there has been a better player in the country so far this season than Kevin Pangos. Right. You know, I, I think I would probably take Jaleel and, uh, and, and Kaminsky. If I, was, if I had to pick you know, a player of the year right now, I'd probably pick one of those two. But in terms of, you know, if I was picking a point guard, there hasn't been a better guard in the country than Kevin Pangos at this point in the season. And, you know, I, I think that Gonzaga has the big guys that kind of match up with them. But, you know, again, it's it's a road game in college basketball. Uh, I, I just – here's my one thing with Gonzaga is I don't know if their big guys are going to be physical enough to be able to handle another really big front line. I think they'll be fine against front lines that – don't overpower them, but you look at who uh, Arizona has, and it's you know it's Caleb and and Stanley and Rondé Hollis Jefferson and, right. and and Brandon Ashley, and they have all these big bodies that are going to end up playing in the NBA, and they play for Sean Miller, who gets his guys to basically beat you up in the paint. And I don't know if you know Domas Sabonis and Kyle Wiltshire and Shemek are going to be ready to handle that. But I'll tell you what, I outside of Duke Wisconsin, I don't know if there's a game. 
um, in the non-conference that I'm more excited to see than Arizona and Gonzaga. Because I think, I think both of them are legitimately national title contenders. I do, too. I love both of the teams. This is one of those games. I'm with you here. Like, uh, you played in Tucson, I'll take Arizona. You played in Spokane, uh, I'll take Gonzaga. But uh, I, I think they're comparable teams. But um, the home team probably wins uh, on Saturday. Okay, well, I've kept you guys here uh, long enough. But before um, I get out of here, I did want to say a few words about Brian Burwell, the iconic and um, in many ways, groundbreaking sports columnist who, who died early this morning after a, a short battle with cancer. He was just 59 years old, uh, 59 uh, years old. And, and I've known Brian for years. He was a fixture at Final Fours, like a, a huge college basketball fan. He was um, on my radio show many times. I was on his radio show many times. We, we shared stories. We shared meals. Just a, a nice man and a, a, a talented voice who is uh, abruptly gone too soon. You know, when... Um, I think when you get a job like like the job I have now, or the job uh, like the job Rob Doster has now, you you meet people all the time because you you hang in certain circles, and sometimes folks are nice to you because um, maybe because they like like your work or or they're a fan of something or whatever. But sometimes I think it's just because um, simply you have the type of job that they might like to have one day. And I guess my point is this: I'm always struck by the giants of our profession. Um, who are kind to everybody, whenever, at all levels, um, with no sort of agenda behind it. And Brian Burwell was always one of those people. This is a man that, you know, when I was young, you know, I watched on television and I looked up to, and I just remember him always being so kind to me when um, I was much younger and, and way more off whatever radar I might be on now. And to me, that's it at least um, on some level, a, a sign of a, a good dude. And so I, I think everybody knows Brian Burwell was uh, an, a, a great and accomplished journalist and radio host and television personality, but he was also um, at his core just a, a really, really good dude. And so my thoughts uh, on this sad day are with him, uh, his family, and, and all of his close friends. As always, um, I appreciate you guys listening. Rob Doster, thank you for being here, sir. Thank you for having me on, and uh, GP. Let's get that paper. We're gonna. Hey, we got a, a last uh, call for drunk vet coming up again tonight. I got off to a blazing start, and then um, Ohio State made some stupid plays in the final twenty seconds the other night that cost me a win there. Instead, got a push, and then of course I got caught in that Cole Center trap last night. Still seven three and one on the season, but we'll uh, we'll double up tonight and get rich. I'm certain. Remember, you can subscribe on the Iowa College Basketball Podcast. At iTunes, uh, that's the quickest way to get your hands on the latest edition. So make sure you do that. And um, have an awesome weekend. I'll talk to you guys early next week. Take care.